Please turn with me in the word of the Lord to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4 as we consider this fourth chapter in our little four-chapter study here of these words of God and his dealings with his people and King Nebuchadnezzar. The first six chapters of Daniel, remember, are the stories or the narratives, and then the last six chapters of Daniel are these prophecies. But the first four of the first six chapters are all um, taking place when Nebuchadnezzar is king in Babylon. So they hold together in that way, looking at the fourth chapter of Daniel, as God has one more word here to this king, the mighty king of Babylon, the ruler of the Babylonian empire. Daniel chapter 4, actually uh, most of the chapter is the king making an um, announcement to his realm about what God has done to him and through him. Daniel 4, God's holy word. Nebuchadnezzar the king, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me, how great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts of my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, And I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you, and no secret troubles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, And all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree, and cut off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it, and the birds from its branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, and bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from that of a man and give, let him be given the heart of a beast and let seven times pass over him. This is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that The living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men 
gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen, but now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said to Belteshazzar, Do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it. But leave its stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men, and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair had grown like eagles' feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. 
All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he is able to put down. God's holy word. Let's call upon the Lord, shall we? Father in heaven, we are humble before you, the high and holy one, the majestic one, Pray that by your word you would remind us of our smallness and our dependence, and you'd help us to give you glory and honor. Save us, Lord, from our pride, and teach us by your Spirit. May Jesus Christ be among us now through his preached word. In his name we pray, amen. Well, we've come to the end of a school year, I think, for most all of the children. But for King Nebuchadnezzar, school is not out yet. There's one more lesson for him to learn. It's the most important lesson that any child, any man or woman could ever learn in the world. It's the the lesson of who God is and who we are in relationship to him. And so God gives to Nebuchadnezzar here sort of a private lesson. He tutors him. The boys and girls know that that teachers make use of, of different kinds of methods for teaching, right? Sometimes they talk to you, sometimes they... Maybe they ride on the dry race board. Sometimes they show a video, maybe, and sometimes they take you on a field trip. Well, Nebuchadnezzar sort of gets all of that, but the main thing is the field trip. He's going to be made crazy. He's going to lose his mind. He's going to become like a beast of the field. He's going to eat grass and live under the dew of heaven without shelter, and his hair's going to grow out crazy, and his fingernails like claws. He's going to be a madman, and he's going to learn that it's not Nebuchadnezzar but God Most High who rules. And so that all having happened, now Nebuchadnezzar writes this open letter to his kingdom, this public announcement to all his peoples, and God gets the glory as his name goes out to the Babylonian Empire, the Lord Most High rules. Now this is an amazing chapter, isn't it, to think that the most powerful man on earth, the mighty Nebuchadnezzar, who had this expansive empire, is, is turned into a beast by the living God at the moment God decrees it. It should give us great comfort as we look at all the power brokers of our world, those in high and mighty places that, that seem to be beyond the reach, the touch of man. Well, there is a God who keeps watch and who has watchers in heaven, and at his command, the great are brought low. Even Satan himself, who's been cast out of heaven, will be cast into the lake of fire. But this chapter also searches our own hearts, doesn't it? Because we, we are naturally, as sinful humans, given to be swollen with pride and to be lifted up. And it is our God's grace to bring us low by his word and spirit. And it's only in that posture of, of lowliness, of humility, that we as the church can be of help to the haughty world, right? It's only in that position of dependence upon God and, and knowing our need of him that, that we 
could be of any help to the world. If we're, if we're high and lifted up, if we're haughty and self-righteous, we're looking down our noses at the world and we think we're something special and we've set ourselves apart, we're not going to be much use to them. But as we say to the world, look at we were haughty and God's grace has brought us low. Come and join us to worship at the feet of the Lord Jesus. Then we're useful. And this chapter helps us to be useful to the world. Because this chapter, I think, deals with one of the most important questions of our cultural time. And it's the question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? That question lies near the center of almost every pressing issue of our culture. And Daniel 4 addresses it by saying to us that the only way to really be human is to bow before the sovereign king, the Lord. We are his creatures, And all of our glory is a bestowed glory given by the God of glory in which we are to reflect him by worshiping him and serving him. Those who won't do that, God opposes. He opposes the proud. He puts down the proud. But the Lord reveals in Babylon, and now God reveals before us this morning, that those who bow to his sovereign glory, those are the ones who know what it is to be humans with a bestowed glory. Let's look at this this morning. I think three words might capture the the whole chapter. The word haughtiness, the word humiliation, and the word humility. Haughtiness, haughtiness is the destroyer of the king's glory. It's the destroyer of your glory and my glory. Haughtiness, pride. And then humiliation. Humiliation is what God does to the proud. Humiliation is the judgment on the king's phony glory. Humiliation is what you and I often experience when we lift ourselves up and God pushes us back down. And then finally, humility. Humility is the only path to restored glory. Well, the first thing we notice in Daniel 4 is that the king is full of pride and boasting. There's a very twisted sense of who he is, living at peace in his palace, and then later in the chapter, overlooking his city and boasting of what he's accomplished. And this actually, this twisted sense of humanity is the ongoing issue in world history. The question is always this, what is the glory of man? What is the glory of humanity? What's what's the dignity of the human creature? What does it consist of? What what is human life? We, We know that humans have a sense of glory, right? R.C. Sproul wrote a book, uh, 40 years ago, the, the hunger for significance. The hunger for significance. And, and he, he writes there, we want our lives to count. We yearn to believe that in some way we are important. The inner drive is as intense as our need for water and oxygen. To, to be made in God's image is to sense that we are not animals. We were made for something. And yet, what is the glory of man? Since Roe v. Wade, 60 million human lives counted as medical waste. In some states, including ours, physician-assisted suicide, declaring that some lives are just not worth living, and the real dignity would be to kill yourself. In some cultures, maybe increasingly in ours also, The the thought that it's your moral responsibility if you get too old and have lots of medical needs. It's your moral responsibility to end your life so you're not a burden to others. That's your glory. 
And for those who don't take their own lives, then the glory is the freedom to be whoever you feel you are. Many have noted that, that our cultural moment can be described as expressive individualism. Expressive individualism in which the feeling inside is the most important thing, more important than your biology or the creation around you or anything else, whatever you feel. So live in tune with who you are, be who you are, be true to yourself. And whatever you feel, you must be free to express outwardly and everybody else has to acknowledge that. What does it mean to be human? King Nebuchadnezzar said, for me to be human is to exalt in my glory. It's to praise myself. He refuses to acknowledge the sovereign reign of the Lord. He evades God's demands. Despite all the the previous chapters here in God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar, he's brought him to recognize over and over again that the God of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, he is God, and yet still Nebuchadnezzar will not bow to him. Here he is, flourishing in his palace haughty and a spirit lifted up, looking at all his wealth. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that, that the warning of wealth and possessions or that God gives about the misuse of these and how they pervert at times, if they're wrongly used, our understanding. Remember Deuteronomy 8, God says, when I bring you into the land of Canaan, you have this land flowing with milk and honey and houses you didn't build and vineyards you didn't plant. You come into paradise, be careful you don't say, look what my hand has done. Same thing in the New Testament. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God. It's very evident, isn't it, that part of the lunacy of our culture is made possible by the wealth and prosperity the Western world has enjoyed. If you don't have to work, 18 hours a day to find food, you got lots of time to think up really stupid things to do. And so it is. We live in a delusional state. Haughtiness has taken over. And yet, as this happens, then we have, have a humanity have forfeited our glory, our true glory. Our true glory. Think of that at the beginning of creation. The very last thing God makes, the very crown of his creation, is mankind, male and female, made in God's image. And they're king and queen. God, God creates this world. He throws them the keys of his creation. He says, it's, it's all yours. Do something with it. Rule over it in my name. You, now beneath me, are to reflect the glory of the great king. You're to do it in fellowship with me, by loving me, by knowing me, by serving me. Man made in God's likeness to rule over not simply Babylon, but to rule over the whole world. And Adam and Eve, however, were tempted by the devil who wasn't content with his position. And they became discontent with their position. And and they together tried to usurp God of his position. We want to be God. And yet when people do that, they lose the real glory God gave them. They forfeit that glory. And so humanity today is is a people who have lost the glory. The glory has departed. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't see all kinds of signs that man is man. If you visit a cathedral in Europe that's dilapidated and ruins, you can still see signs that this used to be a glorious building. 
And so we look at humanity today and we, we see mankind with all of his gifts and abilities and ambitions and dreams and his conscience and his sense of morality and, and his desire to relate to creation, to matter, to environment, and his desire to relate to people and so forth. And all these, these things cry out that, that this was the image bearer, this is the image bearer whose glory has departed. Nebuchadnezzar has twisted that. And he's confronted now by a dream of a tree that rises high enough to be seen across all the world. A tree that's expansive. All the beasts find refuge beneath it and food. That's how Nebuchadnezzar saw himself. He is God to the world, father to the world. But what God sees is a usurper who's stealing God's glory. And God defends his own right against all those who would violate him. So suddenly this heavenly creature says, cut down the tree. That was God's warning. As as Daniel interprets that dream for the king, Daniel brings God's mercy to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, Turn from your sin. Turn from your iniquity. Show mercy to the poor and maybe God will extend your reign. Nebuchadnezzar was was brutish in his conquering of the world, doing violence to nations and trampling upon the poor, building his great city on the heads of, of the oppressed. Turn from your sin. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was being called to reflect the reign of the true king, the coming Lord Jesus. Already back in the Old Testament, Christ was prophesied. In Psalm 72, we read about the reign of a king who will will lift up the oppressed, who will show mercy to the poor, who will will rule with with wisdom and kindness. This gracious rule of Christ is what Nebuchadnezzar must reflect. And if he doesn't, God's wrath will come. Jesus Christ is the one true man, isn't he? In Jesus Christ, we meet the image of God in perfection, don't we? Jesus Christ came to do the will of the Father. Jesus Christ came to lay down his life. Jesus Christ came not with a haughty spirit. We were made to be kings on the earth, not to lift up our hearts and boast in self-glorification. We were to reveal the bestowed glory, reflecting God's glory in this world. But you see, to worship anything or anyone other than God is to dehumanize ourselves. To dehumanize ourselves. To define ourselves in any other way than in relationship to God as his creatures... Or to live a life of pursuing self is death. The end of Proverbs chapter 8 says something quite remarkable. In Proverbs 8, wisdom is speaking. Wisdom personified. We can hear the voice of Christ. And Proverbs 8 says, For whoever finds me, finds life, and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who sins against me wrongs his own soul... All those who hate me love death. All those who hate the wisdom of Christ love death. Our culture loves death. It's everywhere, isn't it? 
We love abortion. It couldn't be any clearer now. It's not even about some supposedly rare cases where it's about the love of abortion. Love suicide. We love redefining marriage and sexuality in ways that are clearly dead ends. Love death. Nebuchadnezzar loved death. He loved to kill people. He loved to destroy himself. And yet, it's not enough, is it, to point the finger at the world out there because the sin of Nebuchadnezzar's heart is the sin of our hearts. We go our own way. But God has given us a Savior that did not come to seek his own glory, teach us a different way, and to recognize how ugly it is when we say, me first. When we count this as our glory, as we often do, my glory is to be first. My glory is to push others out of the way. My glory is to get recognized. Do this in our marriages, don't we? My way, what I want. Do this as children in the home against our sibling. I go first. I'm more important. We do this in the church. I I want recognition. I want the honor. It's a way of death. It's remarkable what the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. And at the end of the list, they'll be haughty. Lovers of themselves. Haughty, perilous days. The essence of sin, one writer said, is that I make myself in a host of ways the center of the universe. And you see ways this morning that you've done that? You've counted yourself as the most important. All things should revolve around my desires, my comforts, my recognition and honor. But what will God do to those who refuse to reflect the image of Christ? What will God do with those who refuse to hear the summons of Philippians 2? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who made himself nothing. But notice, secondly, this morning, the humiliation then that follows. Haughtiness will meet with humiliation. God confronts Nebuchadnezzar with the dream and Daniel's interpretation of it, but after a whole year of delayed justice, a whole year to ponder that dream and that, and that word interpretation from Daniel, what do we find Nebuchadnezzar doing? He's walking about his palace rooftop. He's looking over that city and... And, and, and they say that Babylon was, a, was an amazing city, almost an incredible city. Remember the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. This was, was beyond comprehension, the, the, the human glory, the wonder of, of what Nebuchadnezzar had built, and not just his city, but the empire that he'd amassed. Here he was in, his, in the height of his glory years. And here he is saying, look at what I have done. Look at what's mine. And he was worshiping his own ego. And while he's in the middle of self-worship, at that very moment, while the words are still in his mouth, the voice from heaven, the kingdom has departed from you. And that very hour, Nebuchadnezzar driven out, however that went about, 
whether there's conspiracy and he was thrown out or if he instantly went mad or however it was, God, jealous for his glory, drives him from the throne. And the most powerful king on earth is made to act like a wild beast now. And obviously there's a poetic justice here, right? There's a, there's a great irony of God's judgment. And the man who had been so brutish should now begin to eat grass like a beast. That he who was insane in his pride, the little ant lifting up himself above the creator God, should now go insane in his mind. And there was a great shame and humiliation that, that he who ruled over nations cannot now rule over his own thoughts. And the king who was famous for his glory will now be infamous for his shame. The mighty, the mighty king is like a cow. God's judgment falls. And even the most high on earth is no match for God. As you come to the New Testament, God's judgments don't cease. Remember in Acts chapter 12, Herod, one of the Herods is persecuting the church. And then he's mad at Tyre and Sidon and he... He goes there and he sits on the throne in his royal robes and he lets them apologize to him. He's going to see if he wants them back or not. And they shout out to him as he's on the throne, the voice of a God, not a man, the voice of a God. And he sits there, basks in that. And so the angel strikes him dead because he didn't give glory to God. But the word of God grows, Acts 12 says. This is God, he humiliates haughtiness. most devastating word of indictment against our culture is probably Romans chapter 1, isn't it? That the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth since what may be known about God is clear to them. But they refuse to give thanks to God, to recognize Him. And so they worship the creation, the creature, rather than the Creator. They refuse to recognize this most basic truth in all of the world, that there is God, the creator, and everything else is creation that owes worship and dependence to God. Therefore, God gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged a natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, the men, burning in passion for one another, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Culture is under God's judgment, isn't it? Our haughty world lies beneath the wrath of God. See, God says in his word, he said already in the Old Testament to his people, if you will not serve me with gladness, then you're going to serve your enemies. He says to us clearly in the New Testament, if you will not serve Christ, then you will serve your sin. But you will have a master. It's your glory to serve the Lord. But if you won't serve the Lord with gladness, then you will have the shame of serving Satan, sin. God gives people over to debased mind, 
to a corrupted mind, to a darkened mind. We've been saying now in these past years, the world has gone mad. It's plain absurdity, the things people come up with. It's just not an innocent insanity. It is the wrath and judgment of God. But we've also experienced the humiliation in our own lives, haven't we? And we've lifted ourselves up. I experienced the humiliation recently when I snapped at one of my children and I had to confess my sin of barking. That's what I said. I said, I'm sorry I barked at you. What is barking? It's, a, it's, an, it's an animal behavior, isn't it? We act like brutes at times. We're rude. We're selfish. We're bestial. How can we know that? How can we be humble? Where will we look for the truth? Isn't it interesting that when the dream comes to Nebuchadnezzar, he's afraid, he knows. I mean, giant tree, I'm Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world. You know, he can see the, the parallels here, the dream, but who does he call in first? Calls in all his wise men, his fortune tellers, the magicians, his astrologers, the same ones who previously had failed him. Interesting. He wants to know more details. He wants certainty, but he looks to them first. Why? You can only imagine he doesn't want to hear the truth. You would like to hear an alternative to the tree getting cut down. But then, at last, he turns to Daniel. Sometimes we're like that too, aren't we? We, we see the, the humiliation in our lives, and we don't want to hear what it's the result of. Why these troubles and in, in the home? Why these troubles at work? Why these troubles in, in the marriage? Why these troubles in my heart? And we, we're not sure if we want to hear the, the real diagnosis. We live in a culture that refuses to hear God's diagnosis. I mean, everybody recognizes something's wrong, right? The divided country we live in, the increasing suicide rates, the drug overdoses, the psychologically broken children, the fact now that people would rather live on a computer than relate to a human being, and some people are hoping for companion robots rather than have to have real friends. Something's wrong. But where do they seek the answers? Where are the answers to be found? Well, Call in the unbelieving scientists. Call in the unbelieving doctors. Call in the unbelieving professors. It's hopeless. That's hopelessness. What the world needs is the prophet. And God has given to us a prophet greater than Daniel, the one who is speaking through Daniel. Our Lord Jesus Christ has come to speak the truth. And he's given us his truth now in this inscripturated word, and he's deposited this word in his church, and he's put upon his church the same spirit by which he was anointed so that we should be a prophetic people to declare the truth. That we were made in God's image to glorify him. What's gone wrong is that we've tried to glorify ourselves, and there's no hope in that. I'm telling the truth. Well, Daniel does it the right way, doesn't he? He speaks the truth, but he speaks the truth with love. Spoke the truth, that took great courage, right? The king might have said, you're telling me I'm going to turn into a beast. Off with your head. It takes courage today to speak the truth. We should be ready, brothers and sisters, for economic persecution. 
physical persecution. I mean, things can't continue, right? We have, we have crossed the Rubicon, as it were. Our culture now has redefined humanity. And anyone who takes a different view of it now is unwanted. This trajectory, it, it can't stay here. It goes in a direction in which Christians are unwanted in every way. It takes courage to speak the truth, but we also must speak it with love. Isn't it, isn't it wonderful of Daniel that when Daniel gets the understanding from God of this dream, that he is astonished and too troubled to speak, and the king has to encourage him to talk, and that he says, oh, I wish it was about your enemies, not about you. And there is a compassion about Daniel here and a caring even for his king. Daniel will honor God, but he will also honor his king. Someone suggested that Daniel was able to do this because the spirit of kindness and compassion was conceived in the life of Daniel in praying. Remember later we learned that Daniel prayed every day three times. He, didn't he pray for King Nebuchadnezzar for whom he worked? Didn't he pray for his spiritual life that this man might be converted One writer says, God's prophets make no effort to disguise the truth. They know that only the truth can make us free. At the same time, they are not people who take pleasure in announcing God's judgments. That struck me. The people, they're not people who take pleasure in announcing God's judgments. Wonder. Do we take delight? Do we speak the truth in love? I mean, how will the world take the church seriously when we say to the unbeliever, you are image of God? If while we say to them, we treat them like they're not the image of God. Right? Matters what we post on social media, doesn't it? Matters how we speak. Shall we say to the world, you are image bearers of God, broken and corrupted, but image of God, and treat them like the scum of the earth? We may neither cower in fear, nor may we act with callous disregard for human life. Christ alone has rescued you and me. To him belongs all the praise. Christ who did not stand on the sidelines to ridicule, but entered into the mess to seek and to save the lost. And that's what we see finally. The humility is the only path to restored glory. Humility, the only path to restored glory. Is God going to give up on the world? Is he going to give up on the human race and abandon it to its insane pride? It's interesting that there's some worldviews who actually suggest there'll be a time when, when humans no longer inhabit the earth. In fact, there's been people saying that for a while, but Adam Kirschk in his book, um, The Revolt Against Humanity, Imagining a Future Without Us, he points out that in the past, when people said there'll be a time when, when humans disappear from the earth, they said we should try to prevent that for as long as possible. But Kirsch points out two worldviews. They're actually not agreed, but they're two different worldviews. 
But they're both saying the same thing, that the end of humanity is upon us and we should welcome it. The one view is anti-humanism, a lot of it from the environmental side, which says, look, at you ruin the planet, you deserve to die, welcome your judgment. You're going to run out of food and water and perish. Welcome the sentence you've passed on yourself. But the other side, transhumanism, says that the future of mankind is not to back up technological development and go back to uh, less people on the earth and less things harming the environment, but the way is the way forward. More technology, through genetic engineering, we can have bodies that won't break down and minds that won't decay, and, or we could have artificial intelligence. We can maybe have our brains scanned and put into a robot. And so the future is a planet without humans as we know, but maybe now we'll become mechanical beings and robots. Well, is God going to do that? Is he going to remove humans from the earth? No, God created mankind as the crown of his creation. God has not abandoned the world because God has not abandoned humanity. God sent his son in human likeness. God is not looking to substitute machines for man because he made us with minds and hearts to know him and to love him and to worship him. And no artificial intelligence can do that. Paul has those devastating words in Romans 1. The wrath of God is being revealed, Romans 1.18. But right before that, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. It's a gospel for this world. Eternal life. In Romans 8, you are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Our great trouble today is that we, as a culture, are unable to distinguish between God and creation. And if you can't make that distinction, it's impossible to make any distinction. Right? Now we have a culture that can't distinguish anything. Can't distinguish soul and body. Can't distinguish male from female. Can't distinguish norms of sexuality. If you erase the distinction between God and man, then it's all a blur. But God is merciful, remarkably merciful. God teaches Nebuchadnezzar a lesson, puts Nebuchadnezzar back in his right mind that Nebuchadnezzar might declare the Lord most high reigns in the kingdoms of men. And he gives it to whoever he pleases. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice, and those who walk in pride he's able to put down. Whether Nebuchadnezzar was converted simply in his mind or actually in his heart, and we're going to see him in heaven. We won't get into that. But clearly he was brought low to exalt the Lord. And God, in doing this, was not just at work for Nebuchadnezzar, but he was preserving the world for the coming of the one who would truly teach us how to worship, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When Mary was told the good news that she would have The Christ child, she sang, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. It's lifted up the humble. God has given the kingdoms to our Lord Jesus Christ. The world is his. And Christ has said to us, do not be afraid, little flock, 
For your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. You're going to reign. You're going to reign over a new creation. In your right mind. We don't believe in the revolt against humanity. We believe that the trouble of humanity is the revolt against God. But God sent his son and human nature to die for our refusal to be image of God and giving God glory. Everywhere we seek ourselves, we become like beasts. Everywhere we say, me first, then we see the me monster. We're a brutish, bestial people. But in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of all of our sins through his saving death, and in Jesus Christ, the restoration. We begin to give glory to God by praising and honoring him and by loving and serving others. The church has never dreamed of utopia here below. Don't you see that's the difference between the church and the world? The world wants this to be made perfect, perfect, perfect. And the church says it can't be until Jesus Christ returns and recreates it. We, restored image bearers, are the beginning of a new creation. And Christ is coming to make all things perfect. What does it mean to be truly human? To be truly human is to worship God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The only way back to being truly human is to be humble, to confess our sin, our beastly sin, to fall on our faces and say, you are God, Lord. We have have robbed you of your glory. Forgive us through Jesus Christ and save us and remake us to give to you the glory alone. In that, brothers and sisters, is our glory. In giving God glory, that is our glory. And one day we will see it. As we cover a new heavens and a new earth, and we radiate in the glory of our God, giving to him, in Christ Jesus, all the praise. Amen. Let's bow. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that brings us low, that it might lift us up. And we pray that you would equip us with the heart and spirit of Daniel, no, with the heart and spirit of Jesus Christ, that we, being restored to the image, might show love and compassion, even as we speak the truth to a lost world. And as we speak it, Lord, to our hearts, for still we struggle, Lord. We struggle to think sane thoughts. We pray, Lord, you'd have mercy upon us through Jesus Christ, and that you'd raise up many from the love of death to the Lord of life, to know forgiveness and to be remade by his spirit. Oh, God, bring to yourself glory. Help your church in these trying days. Have mercy, Lord, upon us. Restrain sin. Let the gospel grow. Bring down those who are proud. Lift up the humble. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.